We are back to our series on Ephesians this morning. So uh, I want to invite you to open up a Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, um, there are Bibles in the Purex that you are welcome to use. We are going to be looking at um, the end of Ephesians chapter 5. So our focus will be on verses 22 through 33. Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 23 Actually, in a uh, few moments here, Barb Duzak is going to come up and read the passage, and she's going to start before that for context, but our focus, as I said, will be on verses 22 through 33. So since September, I believe, we've been working our way through uh, the letter to the Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul. Um, The reason that we chose to do this is because we introduced a new vision uh, back in September, And what we said was this vision is grounded in Ephesians. And so we've been exploring our vision together by walking through this book of the Bible. And here's the big idea, the main theme of the book of Ephesians. God is uniting all things in Jesus. In other words, what God is up to in the world is to bring unity to a world that is fractured and broken in every way, in every area of life. And the way that God um, pursues this is really what's most interesting. He uses flawed people like us. He uses flawed people like us in order to fill the world with the presence of Jesus. Ephesians 4, when we hit that point in the book, uh, we've been talking about this represented a transition in Paul's thought. You see, the first three chapters of Ephesians, what Paul was doing was giving us an overview of God's big story of redemption. He was walking us through the story, teaching us, giving us rich theology, um, if you will. And then starting with chapter four, the transition is that Paul now wants to take all of that rich theology. He wants to now take that grand story of God and inform our lives with it. In other words, he wants us to learn how to embody, how to put into practice all that we learned in the first three chapters. Now, verses 18 through 21 of this chapter, chapter 5, is one long sentence in the Greek. I think it was two weeks ago that we uh, really studied this. Um, Be filled with the Spirit is uh, a command that Paul gives, and that command is followed by four participles, addressing one another in song, singing to one another, singing to the Lord and making melody with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything, and finally submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's verse 21. Verse 21 is a transitional verse in this chapter. It's a bridge between two sections. It sets the stage for the rest of Paul's instructions that he's going to give into chapter 6. What he does in verse 21 is he introduces a general principle of submission, and then he goes on to talk about what that looks like worked out specifically in relationships within the home. And here's the the big question that we're wrestling with this morning that we're going to be asking um, for the remainder of the series. What does it look like to practically embody God's story? What does it look like to live the gospel at home. Barb is going to come and read the text for us. Uh, 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to everything, submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to the church and, I'm sorry, it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You don't need me to tell you that this is a difficult passage. Uh, One of the reasons that it's difficult is because we bring all kinds of assumptions to the text. Whether we consider ourselves conservative, whether we consider ourselves progressive, the reality is, is that we bring all kinds of cultural assumptions to the text. And what we want for this morning is for the Holy Spirit to have space and room to, uh, to work in us to bring the truth to bear on our lives so that we might be transformed. So I'm going to pray to that end. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open the story of redemption to us this morning. I pray that you would invite us in. I pray that by your spirit, you would empower us to want to live faithfully under this story. Your word is good. This passage is good. Show us how it is good for our lives, for the church. And I I pray um, that you ultimately would point us to the gospel, the good news of Jesus and how it transforms our lives, even the world. We pray in and through his name, amen. What does it look like to practically embody God's story? What does it look like to live the gospel at home? Uh, Those are our working questions. They're really the same question for the next two weeks. Um, We're going to explore what it looks like to live in light of the gospel at home. Amy Bird is a theologian, and she says this, conversion is the beginning of a whole new life, not just an end to the old one. Let me read that again. Conversion is the beginning of a whole new life, not just an end 
to the old. This is very much Paul's point in the letter to the Ephesians. You need to remember that the people to whom Paul wrote were new followers of Jesus. They had been converted to the the Christian faith. They had come to experience Jesus as Lord and Savior for the first time. Now, these people, as we've talked about, um, came from diverse stories and backgrounds. They represented different ages. They represented different genders. They represented uh, different races. But what they all held in common was that they came from pagan backgrounds that were contradictory to the claims and truths of the Christian faith. And so what Paul is doing in this letter is he is exploring the story of God with them. He's grounding them in this story that they might make the story their own. And what we find out in Ephesians, really from chapter 1 on, but especially beginning with chapter 4, is that God's story of redemption, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is meant to be lived. Yes, it's meant to be believed. We can't live it unless we believe it. But sometimes we place such a focus on believing it that we don't get around to living it. The gospel is meant to be lived. It's meant to be embodied. In other words, God desires for us to be participants in his story. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the Christian vision for marriage. Next week, we'll talk about the parent-child relationship and then this business with slave and master. What do we do with that? We have a lot of hard work uh, in store for us over the next two weeks. But we're exploring the Christian vision for marriage this morning. We're going to look at how God calls a husband and wife in particular to invest in each other. And this is a revolutionary vision. It's a revolutionary vision, and I hope to help make that clear this morning. As we really begin with this idea that this is a revolutionary vision, we have to understand more of the operating story in the Roman Empire of the day. When the original audience would have heard verse 21, submit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, they would have been floored. They would have been floored. Now, when, when you hear that verse, when you heard Barb read that verse, none of you were floored. I would have noticed if you were floored. You probably would have gotten big eyes. You would have jumped up. Some of you maybe got big eyes when you heard the word submit. Um, But none of you, at least, were floored when you heard submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But the original audience would have been floored. They knew all about submission from living in the Roman Empire. And they knew that submission flowed in one direction, from down to up, from the lesser to the greater. But here in that verse, Paul urges Christians, submit to one another regardless of age, gender, race, or economic status. And that word submit specifically means to place oneself under. And so in verse 21, Paul introduces this general theme of submission. It's a voluntary yielding in love. Like I said, it involves placing oneself under someone else in a relationship. Now, some would say, here's the, the, the flow of thought that I think is here from the Apostle Paul. He introduces this general theme of submission in the church, and then he goes from there to, to, to work it out in specific relationships in the church. Um, the marriage relationship, the 
a parent-to-child relationship, and then the slave-to-master relationship. There's going to be a lot to say about that um, when, we, when we get there. But this verse 21 applies to everyone. Now, some make the case that the word submit here specifically means to submit yourself to somebody who is over you. And, and I get that argument, um, and they, but, and they would say that the, the one another part that comes after it is not talking about everybody submitting to one another. It's about what it looks like to submit to those who are over you in specific instances. But I think the way that Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses the, the phrase one another in Ephesians means everybody is inclusive. In chapter, two, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, talks about bearing with one another. In chapter 4, verse 25, he says we are members of one another. And in verse 32 of chapter 4, he says, be kind to one another, forgive one another. This, these are all inclusive. And remember that this all stems back to, it all points back to, be filled with the Spirit. And guess what? All Christians, everybody in the church is meant to be filled with the Spirit. And Paul says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I'm gonna, the word reverence there, it, it means fear. But not in the sense of being scared of, but to, to have a holy all of, to have such great respect for. And so Paul, we're going to see this throughout this section, he's constantly pointing us back to Jesus. He's constantly bringing us back to Jesus and the gospel. Now, remember that this is hard. Now, I actually don't need to tell you to remember that because you know that from your lived experience. When Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, you know that this is difficult. In fact, in many ways, it's the hardest thing to do because we are by nature, by our sinful nature, self-centered, self-focused, self-driven. And that's why there's a point of reference here between this uh, submitting to one another and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need the filling of the Holy Spirit to be able to do this, brothers and sisters. We need to be filled with the Spirit in order to submit to one another because it runs contrary to who we are in our sinful nature. We need security in Jesus to be able to do this. A radical change has to happen inside of us. In other words, we need to be converted by the Holy Spirit to Jesus and his ways. And so Paul, in verse 21, introduces the general theme of submission. And then from there, he begins to get more specific, to work it out in specific relationships within the home. Now, for the original audience, we're going to... Throughout the series, we've been talking about the historical context of Ephesus and the original audience, and that's especially important this morning, because what Paul does here, um, by speaking to the particular people and particular relationships that he does, um, they would not have been surprised by this. There was a thing called the household code that operated in the Roman Empire, um, and it went back even prior to... Um, the time that Paul was writing. Even 400 year, about 400 years ago, Aristotle, some of you have heard of him before, um, talked about a household code. And guess what? In Aristotle's uh, household code, he mentions the same exact relationships that Paul mentions here in Ephesians chapter 5. And this household code was 
essential to how the Roman Empire operated. The household code laid out structures and obligations for household members, especially for the male as the head of the household. And for the Roman Empire, this was essential because the Roman Empire wanted to make sure that the story that was being embodied and lived out was that of the Roman Empire. Submission from the lesser to the greater up to Caesar himself. And so the household code was precious, if you will, to how the Roman Empire uh, operated in general. But Paul does something very intriguing here, something very uh, stunning, something very provocative. He utilizes the household code. Again, the original audience would not have been surprised. They would have known what Paul was doing. Oh, he's, this is the household code. But whoa, what is Paul doing here? He better be careful. We don't play by the rules of the Roman Empire, Paul is basically saying. We play by the rules of God's story. Now, as we look at our own families, at the the families around us, it's so painful because families are so often a place of conflict and pain, of brokenness. But God intends for harmony. He intends for wholeness. The gospel, this is one of the main points of Ephesians, addresses the whole of life, including family life, including the marriage relationship. And God's desire in all of this is to restore unity to where there is brokenness. To restore unity to where there is brokenness. The household code of Paul's day was an oppressive structure. Oppressive, not impressive. An oppressive structure. And what Paul is doing here in many ways is he's undermining the the very structure of the household in the Roman Empire. He's telling a different story. He's calling these new believers in Jesus to a new way of life in the gospel. How does he do that? Well, we're going to see as we work through this, but it's a big deal that Paul addresses women, that he addresses children, that he addresses slaves in this household code, because you would not find that in the household code of the Roman Empire. You would not find that in the household code of Aristotle. In fact, if you look closely, people like Aristotle even say that those other parties are inferior to men. And so that's the working logic for these household codes of the day. But Paul does something stunning. He speaks to women, he speaks to children, and he speaks to slaves. Now, Also realize this, that this letter, like the other letters of the New Testament, would have been read aloud in uh, the the worshipped community, in in the worshipping community. It would have been read aloud. And so just when we might begin to think, well, marriage is a a private thing. Uh, Parent-child relationship is private. What's going on with slave and master? That's private. No, these are all public. And Paul wants everybody in the worshiping community to understand how God's story speaks into these relationships, into the home. In ancient times, the husband was basically an unquestioned dictator, and the wife was little more than a servant to bring up his children and minister to his needs. These are the realities that you see throughout from Aristotle on in the various household codes. In each grouping here, 
It's stunning, not for us, but for the original audience, that Paul actually speaks first to those that everybody would have expected are, are the party that must submit. But he speaks to them first. And the reason he does that is he is dignifying everybody in the church. He's saying that we all have a part to play in the story. We all are image bearers of God. We are all actors, if you will, in this grand story of redemption. We all have rights and responsibilities. We're all moral agents. And so the household code that Paul presents was radical and profoundly liberating. Now, let's get into the specifics of Paul's household household code. Let's begin by looking at how um, Paul speaks of the wife embodying the story at home. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, what's um, fascinating here is that in the original language, the Greek, the word submit is actually not in this sentence. Um, It's borrowed from verse 21. So Paul introduces the general theme of submission in verse 21, And then it's to be understood that now we're going to begin talking about how submission takes place in the home. And he calls wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Now, to me, it it can't be that Paul is just simply repeating the same thing. He means something here when he calls wives to submit to their husbands. What does he mean? Well, we get a little bit of help as we skip down to verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So when Paul gets to the end of this section to summarize, he uses the word respect. So um, where Paul is coming from in this specific uh, uh, instance here in talking to to wives, submission and respect seem to be on the same level. He's calling wives to submit or, or to respect their husbands. Now, notice it says, to your own husbands. Um, Paul is not calling um, all women to submit to all men, outside of the fact that in verse 21, he calls all Christians, in a sense, to submit to one another. That is true. But he's not calling all women to submit to all men. He specifically, explicitly says, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. As to the Lord. That's a key phrase there. Because Paul, time and time again, throughout the New Testament, throughout this letter, and throughout this household code, is going to keep bringing it back to Jesus. He's going to keep bringing it back to the gospel. Jesus is our relational model. Jesus is the one that we look to. We don't look to our culture um, um, to be informed on how to live out the Christian faith. Ultimately, we look to Jesus. Marianne May Thompson says that this does not imply blind assent to a husband's every wish and whim. It is rather the response of Christian character spelled out in the previous section. Submit, respect, honor. This is not something that is to be um, to be dominated by the husband. It's not something that to be is to be um, required by the husband necessarily. The whole point here is that this is a voluntary submission. 
that these moral agents are exercising their will to do what God calls them to do in the power of the gospel. So, what does this mean? Does this mean that wives should be in the home cooking, taking care of the kids, waiting on their husbands? If we say yes, we have to be aware of the fact that we are reading cultural constructs into the text. Like, it's really interesting to me, um, having traveled to West Africa um, in two, two different times, that the way that roles and responsibilities get worked out in the home are inevitably very different, generally speaking, than in the West, and particularly here in America. Notice that Paul does not go into detail about how these roles uh, are, are to be worked out specifically when it comes to responsibilities. It requires wisdom. I know, that's hard. We don't like that. We want to be told, I mean, there are many places in the Bible um, that this applies to. We want to always be told exactly what to do and how to do it, but God rather gives us wisdom and he fills us with the spirit to navigate these things in life. Um, part of this is that we, we have to, there, a few years ago, I preached a, a sermon series on marriage called The Strategic Team. And it was really rooted in um, Genesis and God's um, desire for marriage. And we um, looked at the scope of the biblical story. Um, but in, in that series, and I always talk with couples about this in premarital counseling, that we, we have to be careful of bringing these cultural constructs into the home. Um, for example, I know um, a, a couple in this church for whom the husband is an amazing cook. Not going to mention names, but he's an amazing cook. I think it would be awkward for the wife to say, you know what, I'm not as gifted, no offense, she would agree with this, I'm not as good at cooking as you, but because uh, I'm the woman of the house, I must do all the cooking, get out of the kitchen. No, they're a strategic team. They recognize, they recognize the gifts that they bring, and as husband and wife, they, they work this out in unity. And thank goodness that's the case. I, I've never had the, the, the wife's cooking, but the husband's cooking is, is amazing. They're not blushing, so that's good. I didn't tell them I was going to do that. So much of what we bring into a Christian marriage particularly in our culture, are just things from culture, things from, um, that we might refer to as uh, Christian conservative culture. And just as we have to be aware of just blindly bringing in things from progressive culture, we have to be just as aware of bringing in things that we would uh, are, say, from American conservative uh, culture. We want to be shaped by the gospel. We want to be shaped by the Bible. We want to be shaped by God's story. And God's story in so many ways um, does not line up with um, the things of our culture. And sometimes it's not even a matter of not lining up. It's a matter of the practice of wisdom, like we talked about. In my home, if I oversaw finances, it wouldn't be great. Now, but, but actually, I, I tell couples in premarital counseling that early on in our marriage, I did. And it worked because I'm really, or makes it sound like Katie's not organized. Katie is organized, but I am really organized, like ridiculously so. Um, and so when um, we were um, 
poor, didn't have as much money. Um, it was easier for me to have oversight of the finances, but as things grew and got complicated, we're not millionaires, we're not rich, but inevitably it gets more complicated. Katie took that over because I'm terrible at math. And I'm, I don't like numbers. She loves numbers. And so even in a marriage, there are various seasons of life in which s- certain responsibilities change. That's the practice of wisdom in the context of marriage. Now, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What do we do with that? The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Sometimes we make this overly complicated. What does it mean that Christ is the head of the church? Well, this is actually one thing that Paul talks about in detail. Because look where he goes from here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, being, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And it goes on from there. Three times in this passage, Paul calls husbands to love their Wives, men, husbands, if you want to be ahead of your household, learn how to die to yourself on a daily basis in order to uplift and empower your wife. That's what Jesus does for the church. If you are a single man here this morning and you want to go into marriage so that you can exercise rule, don't get married. Go into marriage if you want to exercise the servant leadership of Jesus, because that's what Jesus desires, and that's what Jesus expects. Anything less is not following in the footsteps of Jesus. Nine verses here, nine verses are devoted to the um, responsibility of the husband. We, we get so uh, hung up, and, and I get why, we, we, it's, we have to talk about it, um, the word submit, especially because um, that word, this text, has been abused against women in so many horrible ways throughout church history. Um, the, a wife is not expected to submit to a husband that uh, physically abuses her. That is a breakdown of the marriage covenant. And too many times there are instances where churches, where elders um, say that you must uh, tell a married woman, you must stay in this married relationship even though your husband is beating you. That is horrible, it is anti-biblical, and is not the way of Jesus. But nine verses, we get so hung up on the word submit that we don't like, get beyond it. But the reality is, is that God has much harder things to, to um, require of the husband here in this passage. Three times in these verses, the husband is told to love. And what does that love look like? Laying down your life for your wife. Sometimes I hear application of this passage, and it says that, you know, something like, if your wife ever finds herself in danger or in a crisis, it means that you are willing to sacrifice your life for her. Okay, sure, fine. That's not the specific instance that's on Paul's mind when he's writing this. He's talking about day in and day life 
in the home. Sacrificing yourself for your wife on a daily basis in order to demonstrate the love of Jesus. As I said, Paul keeps bringing this back to the gospel. For the husband, for the wife, for all these parties, he keeps bringing it back to Jesus because the way that this is supposed to work is that the home is kind of like this stage. It's a theater. And we're all meant to step up onto the stage and to play our parts well in order for God's story to be known by the world. And as we play our parts well, the various parties and the world itself comes to know the beauty and glory of Jesus. And so a husband is meant to empower his wife to know the love of Jesus more deeply, and the wife is meant to do the same thing. It's this beautiful um, dance, if you will. I'm terrible at dancing. I can't believe I just used that example. When Katie and I go to weddings, I'm the person who sits at the table when literally sometimes everybody else is up dancing, and then the music slows down, and I know what's coming. She's going to ask me to dance. Um, but I sacrifice for her, right? I, I, I do it. But as we dance, and, and I'm not good at it, like I have to try. I, I have to try to cooperate because if I don't, the, the dance can't work. And that's how it is with marriage. A, a, a woman who is a wife who is respecting and submitting to her husband in the way that God intends um, causes a husband, should cause a husband to want to sacrifice himself more for her. A husband who is sacrificing himself for his wife is meant to cause a wife to want to respect um, and, and submit to him. This is the way of the gospel. The design is for people to become who God intends for them to be. It's unity, it's wholeness. So Paul devotes nine verses here to the husband. That's three times more space than um, the the duties that he presents for a a, a wife. And the appeal here is really to abandon self-centeredness. That's the appeal, to abandon self-centeredness. And this is so hard. I'll say more about that in a few minutes when we wrap up. The husband and wife are, are called to distinct things, but each has to do with sacrificial living. And of all the things that a husband is called to do, he is called to love. Verse 25, what does that love look like? Christ gave himself up for the church. Verses 26 and 27, cared for the church to promote her well-being. What Paul presents here is a husband who is singularly focused on the well-being of his wife and seeing her thrive in the good news of Jesus. Now, this would have been incredibly surprising to the original audience because the original audience would have come in with the assumption that the head of the household is one who dictates, who is a ruler. It's all about authority. But notice that Paul, in all of his instructions, doesn't talk, tell the father to be more, the husband to be more authoritative. He tells him to love, to sacrifice. That's what it means to be the head of the home that you are one who is sacrificing yourself for the good of the home. The Bible is not talking about a domineering person who makes all the decisions himself, who suppresses his wife and prevents her from uh, exercising gifts. That's not it at all. Um, Last week, uh, 
I mentioned last Sunday that last Saturday, uh, Israel, um, our assistant pastor, passed his transfer exams to come into our presbytery. Um, and at the end, um, he leaves the room and we um, talk about whether or not we're going to sustain his exams. And there was really no discussion to be had. We didn't. I'm just joking. We did. Um, and then Israel comes back in. And one of the things that happens is his call, um, in, in the terms of his financial package are read aloud. And he has to say that he agrees to them. You want to know what Israel's response was? Israel, the, question from the, uh, the question was, do you um, accept this call? My wife accepts, was Israel's answer. And immediately everybody said, that's a good man. Unity. That's the, that's, that's the goal here. Um, sometimes it's it said that one of the ways that um, the, the, the man as head of the household exercises that role is that when it comes to big decisions that are being made and the husband and wife aren't on the same page, the, the husband has the tie-breaking vote. I mean, that could be some application that you want to bring in. It's not anywhere in Scripture, but Katie and I in our marriage have never done anything like that. When we are not on the same page about something, my view is that as the head of my household, I have to do what it takes to figure out how to bring us to a point of unity. I mean, it's the same principle at leading an elder team. That when we're making big decisions, we, we want to have a unanimous decision. And so as the leader of the elder team, it's my, um, my, my role to figure out how to move us toward unity. And guess what that always requires? It always requires that we give up something. It requires that we give up something. It's hard. I don't like it. I want to do things my own way. And there are times where Katie says, I'll let you make the decision. There have been times where I've said, I don't care. You make the decision. Not about, like, not about huge things like, should we move to this state or take that job? But other things in life, I say, I don't feel strongly about this. As, a head of, as the head of my household, my job is to pursue, help us to pursue unity together so that we are on the same page. Now, here's how this all unfolds. Paul is, so he begins with the general principle of submission. And he's not saying with that general principle of submission that there are no structured relationships in the home or the society. Like he's working those out. And so we, we can't just take verse 21 and say, oh, that means that there's no structure into the church, there's no leadership, this doesn't apply in the home. That, that's not the, the, the point here. But what Paul is doing is he's telling a different story. He's framing the household code according to the gospel, according to God's story, not Caesar's story. In his book, um, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark talks about what kind of gradually happened in the Roman Empire as a result of the Christian faith taking root and spreading. He says, amidst contemporary denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, it is easily forgotten that the early church was so especially attractive to women that in 370, the Emperor Valentinian issued a written order to Pope Damascus I requiring that Christian missionaries cease calling at the homes of pagan women. Why? Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. 
Christian women enjoyed far greater marital security and equality than did her pagan neighbors. Imagine that. The Roman Empire basically had to say, all right, missionary, you can't go to the homes of, of, of women anymore because we can't have this. You're undermining the story of our empire. And it's structured in, in such a way that ultimately Caesar gets the allegiance. But Paul's undermining that structure because for the Christian, Jesus gets the allegiance. Let's wrap this up. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're not married and you have no idea what to do with any of this, maybe. So why, why like, preach on this in gathered worship? Well, one reason I, I alluded to earlier was that um, what happens in the home is not merely private. Uh, marriage, um, what we're focusing on this morning, has a public function. Marriage is meant to contribute to the good of um, the culture around us. But what if you're here this morning and you're single and you long to be married? I want you to know that Jesus sees you. Jesus hears you and Jesus loves you. And what I want to say to you also is that the church needs you. Like we need you. Sometimes what happens in the church is marriage becomes an idol. And we talk about marriage as if it's the only possible uh, 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 way to express true humanity. Paul himself, to our knowledge, was not married. Jesus was not married. But we need your singleness in the life of the church. We need your gifts. Um, I need you to help make my marriage better by speaking into our marriage, um, by walking alongside of us in life and allowing us to walk alongside of you. You matter. Your story matters. What if you're here this morning and you are divorced? And what if you are divorced because of your sin? You know it. That your actions caused your marriage to unravel. I want you to know, according to Ephesians 4.32, God forgives you. God forgives you in Christ. There is real forgiveness to be had. There's real mercy to be had from Jesus. Jesus is able to um, bring his forgiveness to bear on your life in such a way that you're transformed and you're able to move on. What if you're divorced because of the sin of another? I want you to know that Jesus does not abandon you. He doesn't abandon you. And I want you to invite you to lean into Jesus, to, to lean into the church so that others might walk alongside of you as God moves you towards uh, healing and wholeness. And for those of us who are married, maybe you feel stuck in your marriage. Maybe your marriage doesn't look anything like what Paul frames here. Marriage is hard. I mean, relationships are hard. I often tell our leadership that, um, I mean, I knew coming into planning a church and pastoring a church that relationships were hard, but I had no idea. Would I have still done it had I known? Yes, yes. I would have responded to God's call on my life. But relationships are hard. They're messy because we are by nature so self-centered. 
And marriage, because of that, is hard. And that's why the deeper meaning of marriage is so desperately needed. You see, the story that frames the the roles, duties uh, of husband and wife in the home, in the marriage, are framed according to the gospel. Even going back to verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then later on in the text, Paul begins to talk about the unity between a husband and wife, a unity that was intended from the beginning but has been fractured and broken because of sin and how Jesus wants to um, put that back together. Like that's how detailed the uh, story of redemption is, that God desires for redemption to occur in every nook and cranny of life, including marriage. But it's this beautiful picture of husband and wife as one flesh, of the unity that God intended from the beginning. But there's a deeper point here, a deeper meaning. Marriage does not exist for itself. Marriage exists to tell the story of God. Marriage exists to tell the story of the gospel. And yes, marriage is hard. That's why the deeper meaning of marriage is needed here. All the things that Paul has walked us through, forgiveness, speaking the truth in love, so on and so forth. We need to be spirit-filled. That's set the context for this section. Remember, we need to be spirit-filled. The Holy Spirit that is ours through new life in Jesus, is empower us to, empowers us to move forward despite how hard and difficult marriage might be. The Holy Spirit is able to empower us to provide help. Selfishness must be uprooted. Sin is the greatest enemy here. And what the gospel does is it uproots our selfishness. It brings us to Jesus, the one who gave himself up for us when we were not worthy, when we were not deserving, when we were hard to deal with. Jesus gave himself up for us. That becomes our point of reference, but it also becomes our source of power. You see, in in moments of my marriage, in those moments that happen regularly where I feel my self-centeredness taking over, Maybe I don't want to do what Katie has asked of me. Maybe I want to just remain in my comfort. Sometimes I submit myself to the Holy Spirit. And I remember what Jesus did for me. Not simply as a a mental exercise, not just simply as a point of reference, but as the very power of God that floods into my life to help me to overcome my self-centeredness and to lay down my life for my wife. I don't always do that. You can ask her that, all right? Not saying that I always do that. I need the Holy Spirit. Robert Mounts is a former college president and uh, commentator on the Bible. And uh, several years ago now, some of you have heard me tell this story, um, I watched a... um, a documentary about his relationship with his wife, Mary, especially toward the end of her life. She was suffering from an extended illness. Um, 
She was confined to a wheelchair, and her husband, Robert, was her primary caregiver. So he spent his days reading to her, playing the piano for her, taking her for drives, feeding her. And as you can imagine, maybe just based on my explanation or description of this, it's, it's really moving. But there's something that Dr. Mount said um, in that clip that stands out to me. I haven't forgotten it. He said this, the best life is a life that's invested in someone else. The best life is a life that is invested in someone else. It's not a life that's invested in yourself. And that's what love is, placing the welfare of the other ahead of your own. My hope, my prayer is that through our marriages and through our church life together, we might embody the good news of the story in such a way that our world, uh, our city, as they look on, would recognize that the story that they are living by is not satisfying. It's not big enough. It's not good enough. May we embody God's story together in our, in our life together in that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how it's good. We thank you for how it's hard. We pray that you would drive us to Jesus, that we might not just simply believe the good news, but experience it more fully. And I I pray that this would overflow into our relationships inside of our church, whether it be marriages or um, other, uh, the other relationships that we find ourselves in. I pray that they would all tell the story of the gospel. I pray that they would point to Jesus. Help us, we pray, to be a countercultural community that lives for the life of the communities around us as we embody the good story of God. We pray for the honor and glory of Jesus, the one who deserves all of our allegiance. Amen.